Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Dan McGowan, in for Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast, where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. In Rhode Island, we knew Nicholas Alaverdian as an advocate for Rhode Island foster children. He was notorious for spending time at the State House, lobbying officials, and was pretty relentless about contacting reporters, including me. The law enforcement officials say he's also a con artist and a sex offender who faked his own death. In 2022, they arrested him in Scotland, allegedly living under the name Arthur Knight. Journalist Jane McSorley spent a year following the story for the podcast series, I Am Not Nicholas. We'll talk about what she learned after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. I'm here with Jane McSorley, the reporter behind the I Am Not Nicholas podcast. Thank you for joining us, Jane. You're very welcome, Don. Before we get started, I feel like we should just stipulate, what should we call Nicholas slash Arthur? I think Nicholas, whether it's Rossi or Oliverdian, he's definitely Nicholas. Yeah, we'll, we'll stick with Nicholas. How did you get connected to this story originally? Was it just from reading the news? I mean, what, what, what made you jump into it right away? It was the 15th of January, 2022, when I saw this article on the BBC News Scotland website. And it was US man who faked death found alive in Glasgow. And I was like, good God. So I clicked onto the article and it said that the man who they called Nicholas Rossi was arrested in a COVID ward in December but he was saying that he wasn't Nicholas Rossi or Nicholas Aliverdian. He was saying that he was Arthur Knight. It was talking about the multiple aliases that he had. And it was talked about what he was wanted for in Utah. And I was like, wow. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of tailor-made for tabloid culture. And yet it also actually got lots of attention from, I think, I'm going to say the more reputable news outlets all across the world in a lot of ways, including back here in the United States. It's almost perfect when there's this deep, compelling story that also has kind of that tabloid uh, uh, element to it. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it just, it what had such wide appeal and it was transatlantic. You know, it was like, you were looking into it, Dan. I was looking into it across the pond here in Scotland. You know, it was the broadsheets, it was the tabloids, it was 
telly, it was radio, it was online, you know, and certainly for Scotland, it was, it was, and it still is a big story. And I just grabbed it and I ran and I didn't know who I was doing it for. I knew it was going to be a podcast. And luckily, you know, I got it commissioned a few weeks later. So the thing is, is this story would be fascinating uh, if it were just a con man who faked his death, but he's also wanted on rape charges. I mean, this is a serious story. I'm curious how you handle telling a story that uh, is both gripping, but also involves some really serious accusations that affected a lot of people. Yeah. And I think that was why I was so passionate about the story as well. I mean, it was because, you know, he's got a you know, a very checkered history, you know, he deceived multiple people on both sides of the Atlantic, including myself, in terms of what he's wanted for in Utah. And in terms of, you know, there's an allegation of of rape in in the UK here in in Essex from 2017, when he first fled the US. Um, So, you know, there was a very, very serious issue at the heart of this. And I think that's why I just, you know, thought, well, I'm rolling my sleeve up here you know I'm digging into this I am not letting go and you know you know it, it wasn't just you know a wee, a wee con man with a couple of wee fraudulent things it was much more serious than that and you had a breakthrough almost right away because you got invited to dinner at Nicholas's house tell us a little bit about that within two days of me saying yes this is it I got myself to Glasgow. I'd found out where he was living, where his wife was. He was in prison. I actually met Arthur and Miranda's landlord. And then as soon as I heard that Nicholas was out, I texted Mr. Sood, his landlord, and I said, can you please pass on a message to for Nick, Nicholas, Arthur to call me? And a couple of days later, I got a call from an unknown number, and it was Miranda. And Nicholas was on speakerphone. And we should say Miranda is, of course, Nicholas's wife. And initially, you know, you you go over there and and you have a relatively good time, right? And and almost believed Nicholas to some degree. No, I didn't almost. I did believe him. (laughs) It's just like... I mean, when I when I think of that, I mean, but I went round to his flat, you know, and um, because I was pretty, pretty sure I was going to see Nicholas Rossi, you know, a, you know, a convicted sex offender on the sex offenders registries wanted, you know, for a rape in Utah, violent, <laughs> violent past. I thought, you know, I better sort of have some sort of backup. So I had a, I, I did have a security backup outside. So I was nervous. I was excited too. And and when I, you know, when I rang the bell and they, they greeted me warmly, Miranda did when I walked into his flat, Nicholas was in his wheelchair, Arthur then. I was calling him Arthur. And he was dressed in a three-piece suit with a bow tie, you know, and the dinner was cooking. It was champagne chicken. And, you know, it was all very amicable. He was very engaging. He was very warm. He was, he was witty. He was, you know, and I just thought, okay, I don't know. It was just sort of trying to get my head around all of this. I thought, okay, this is what who this man supposedly is. But, you know, he's telling me he's Arthur Knight and all the rest. And I knew, 
I knew I had to ask him to see his tattoos because that was part of the way that he was identified in the hospital because he has these distinctive tattoos. And then what he did do, I mean, he was clever. He knew what he was thinking. He then got on his massive TV screen. He got these big close-ups, basically the mug shots off Nicholas Rossi's tattooed arms that were taken off often by, by the cops, you know, many years ago. The left forearm was tattooed the whole way from the shoulder to the wrist. The and the right arm was just tattooed on the on the top forearm. He only pulled his sleeves back to his elbows, but that was enough for the left forearm because there were no tattoos at all and no scarring. Just And I was just looking at it as if it was my arm because it was so close. I had my glasses on. Then I was looking at the big screen with these tattooed arms and thought, Jesus, <laughs> I just thought, oh my God, I actually think this is Arthur Knight. I genuinely thought that the authorities had made a terrible mistake and this was this random Irish man caught up in this absolute terrible case of mistaken identity. I suppose, Jane, that that would have been a wonderful story too for you to tell. So either way, you were going to win. Yes, you know, I mean, it's like whenever I left, I was like rang my boss on the way home and I thought, Jesus, whatever this is, this is a great story and maybe it's an even better story if it's a terrible case of mistaken identity. I just thought, oh my God, I actually think he is this Irishman, Arthur Knight. It was just, but anyway, I I quickly um, came to my senses um, very soon after that because I managed to contact um, one of his his second ex-wife and um, she had confirmed that way back in 2016, 2017, he was going through the process of getting his tattoos removed. Yeah. I mean, was that the tipping point for you that made you kind of convinced that this was the case? Like, how do you go from, wow, maybe this is a case of mistaken identity to seemingly this is Nicholas? No, it's a good question. I mean, he held a couple of press conferences and the first press conference, he turned on and he was talking about, you know, Nicholas Rossi and, you know, what he was subjected to and, you know, all the rest. And you thought, well, Nicholas Rossi is meant to be dead anyway. And I remember I basically turned and said, you know, if you're Arthur Knight, why are you concerned about Nicholas Rossi? Why are you, you know, defending him? I mean, you're Arthur Knight, so why are you wasting your... (laughs) Why are you wasting your time and your energy giving a press conference defending Nicholas Rossi? Yeah, it was almost like he was doing opposition research for a political campaign. You know, he he had all this info. And if he was Arthur Knight, why in the world would he know about all these facts from the United States? Very simply, though, the first time I talked to you, I heard your accent. I said, she's British. When you heard Nicholas Alverdian carrying on an English accent. Could Did you have a sense right away that it was an authentic accent? You know, he never had this American accent. It never really came through. It was a pretty good, I have to say, sort of posh English accent. You know, I have to give him, you know, credit for. What I have to slag him off for, for want of a better word, is his Irishisms. You know, he's, you know, he was apparently from Ireland, you know, but every now and then he would come up with I or he would say Dublin and it was just like all wrong and it was just like as soon as he said Dublin he he obviously must have realized you know that he was thought he must have said it but quite well because he must have said Dublin about I don't know (laughs) four, four times within about a minute. It's funny I'm sure you probably picked it up a little bit here when you were when you were reporting in the United States and I want to get get into that there's a very distinct accent and very different accent between the kind of Rhode Island accent and the Massachusetts accent. And I remember running into him at times, particularly when he was a student at the Harvard Extension School, where 
the Nicholas that I had known for several years at that point was suddenly dropping his R's and, you know, going to pock the car. <laughs> and he sounded like, you know, a poor example of Matt Damon or Ben Affleck, you know, in Goodwill Hunting. And I remember catching that and thinking, boy, that's so strange because you didn't drop your R's when I first met you. And was it quite authentic? If I didn't know him previously, yeah, yeah, I think it probably would have been, which is probably, which is a little bit of what you're saying. Um, What was your impression on the people that you interviewed in Rhode Island when it came to what we thought of Nicholas? Nobody really had anything very good to say about him. That's the God's honest truth. And, you know, it was all about these errors and graces that he was always putting on, the big effort that he was putting on to be somebody that he wasn't. Effectively, I think that's what it was, you know, but, you know, in terms of peeling back the layers and getting to know the real Nicholas Rossi, the real Nicholas Oliverian, we we got that, I feel, you know, quite quite well from his uncle, Michael Oliverian, who was his father's brother. Speaking to his uncle, we sort of unpacked it a wee bit, his childhood and his upbringing and his dysfunctional family. And you know, he sort of understood a wee bit more, you know, why he became the man that he now is, really. I remember you asked me a specific question that I kind of felt somewhat uncomfortable with. And it was, to some degree, do I think the media, including myself, in covering him as sort of a child advocate, that we almost built him up and almost were responsible for uh, building his ego and, and, and potentially, you know, the con. Did you think we, we, we did build him up too much uh, or more than we should have? No, I don't think you did, actually. He's very plausible. He's so articulate. The Department of Children, Youth and Families is a fundamentally flawed governmental agency. You that see him speaking in the archive that there is the out there. Without this necessary support. You know, you see how he looks, you see, you know, how confident he is. Adolescents, people who were in the shoes that I was in 10 years ago would not have a chance at being successful. You know, he gave a great quote. You know, he knew he, he knew what he was talking about. He'd been there, done that. He'd been in the system and come out, you know. Yeah, you can you can never underestimate what repetitions do for somebody when they're in front of the, the media. His ability to appear in front of the media for 10 years and almost set the table for him when he has you in his house or when he's having press conferences. He was so comfortable yes. doing that stuff because of what happened here in the United States. He, he was, you know, and that's why he was recording everything. He, he had a Zoom H6 recorder like me. He had his directional mics like me with his mic stands. And he was asking me questions. And I was like, good God, what's happened here? You know, I asked him a question and he turned on and he just asked me a question back. And I said, I'm the journalist. I'm asking the questions. And then he turned on and he said, well, I've got a mic. I'm a journalist and I'm asking questions. And I thought, oh my God, where's this story going? What's happened to this man and me? One of your big revelations in the podcast, I think the biggest maybe, was that you believe that the widow who talked to a lot of people, including me, who told us about Nicholas's death that he faked, was actually his current wife, Miranda. Tell us how you came to that conclusion, because you you went really deep on this. You did a lot of work to verify that. Well, I can't say where we got the audio from of the grieving widow, Louise. What I can say is that we were in the car, myself and my producer at the time, and we were on the highway and the audio landed in my colleague's inbox. And she said, shall I play it? And I said, yes, because I, you know, I just, 
I just, well, you know, I just thought, forget about driving. I, I want to hear this. But let's play the tapes. This is a recording of Nicholas's so-called widow, Louise. Um, basically, the priest was explaining that uh, he had done his first funeral on Monday, the first since, um, obviously, uh, the lockdown. And here is Miranda. He has never hurt me, never touched me. He doesn't abuse me. I love him. Jane, how did, how were you able to tell from listening to those that it was the same person? I know Miranda's accent very well. It's a Bristol accent. I've heard it for months, you know, whether it was interviews or on the phone or outside the courthouse. When we heard the audio of the grieving widow Louise, within literally two or three seconds, I knew it was the same person. And it wasn't as if it was just me that thought that. My colleagues all got it straight away. It was her. And then we got a forensic voice expert. And she, in fact, said that, you know, there was a very strong chance that they were, you know, the same person. And, you know, we put it to Miranda. I played her her voice. You know, she never came back to us saying it wasn't her. If it wasn't her, I mean, God, my God, we would have got some sort of strong <laughs> lawyer's letter. But the fact of the matter is, it's her you know, and um, she can't deny that. Yeah, I can't help but in some ways worry for her and be a little bit worried about her. Um, Got to wrap it up, but I do want to hear the, give us where we stand in the extradition process. Very simply, do you think Nicholas will be back in the United States before the end of the year? I hope so. Um, this has gone on far too long. Um, it's gone over, on over 18 months. Tomorrow, on the 20th of April, um, it's a preliminary extradition hearing. So, you know, there's not going to be that much will happen, but they'll just be looking ahead to the full extradition hearing, which um, starts the week of the 26th of June. They've scheduled a week for it at Edinburgh Sheriff Court. The last time Nicholas was meant to appear in court, he actually didn't. The word was that he refused to get into the prison van. So the the sheriff was deeply unhappy about this. You could see that he was very, very cross in, in the court. And he basically said, come this 26th of June, whether he's got legal representation or not, whether he's present or not, it's going to happen. It sounds to me like there should be a season two of I Am Not Nicholas. Any chance that's in the works? Who knows? There might, there might be... We bonus episodes. I mean, certainly I think this this merits a drama because it's just, it ticks lots of those boxes and certainly that has got massive appeal, not only, you know, both sides of the Atlantic, but I, I think, I just think generally anybody is interested in this story. Whenever I recount this story to people, you just can't get your head into Nicholas Rossi's head. It's just like, what possesses him to still fight it tooth and nail that, that, that he's Arthur Knight? Well, I have a family in Glasgow who just won't stop talking about your podcast. So I feel like you're going to be in my life forever. (laughs) Uh, Congratulations on all of your success and the wonderful and amazing recording that you've done. Thank you so much for joining me, Jane McSorley. Thank you, Dan. To read my column about Nicholas Aliverdian, go to globe.com slash ri. That's globe.com slash ri. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. 
Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. And if you like the podcast, do us a favor. Follow the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Dan McGowan. Ed will be back next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all anytime and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.